Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, this is Anupa Mystery, and you're listening to Burnout, short conversations about creative sustainability with working artists. Some still don't know what to do. So I don't think it's a secret that I'm a book lover, but maybe a secret that's not really a secret is that I've always wondered, how do you actually sit down and put that many words together? That's why I asked Adnan Khan to come on the show. Last year, his debut novel was published and it's called There Has to Be a Knife. In Adnan's words, it's about a guy whose girlfriend dies and he's having a bit of a tough time. Don't worry, I got Adnan to elaborate because it's about so much more than that. The economics and self-destructive coping methods of urban living and the tightrope of being a young Muslim man today. Adnan and I talked about how he got it done. It's a wide-ranging conversation about India and reading and writing and the early value of educators and your family and your creative process. We also talk about the social pressures of the internet. And we do reference some places from in and around Toronto, but do not worry about getting it if you're not from here. I think we make it work. Thanks, as always, for listening to Burnout. And here's my conversation with Anand Khan. Like, oh, just because I wrote this one book, now I'm suddenly a fucking novelist and I have to write another one? Like, that to what me is you, what, it's just very rude to me that people would assume that from me. <laughs> You know, I had the moment when I found it in March, I was like, all my life, I wanted to write a book and now that's done. And now there's a big gaping hole where, you know, I have used this to fulfill all those other parts of my life that are now like, hey, we're still here. You know, life is still maybe meaningless (laughs) now that this is done. That doesn't go away. My name is Adnan Khan and I'm a writer. So when we were in J school, my good friend... Jeff and I, we had this assignment and for his part of the assignment, he went to go interview like a local sci-fi author that he Mm -hmm. really liked. At some point in the interview, the guy like flipped the script and he was like, so why are you asking me about my book instead of writing your own? And so I guess I just wanted to relay that anecdote to kind of convey that that the only reason you're here. Yeah. (laughs) So that I could be like. So how did you write a book? <laughs> oh, I got you. It's a weirdly banal process that it has a lot of mystery around it. You know what I mean? It's just discipline, right? It's just discipline. And it's like, it's just a matter of accumulation. Whether it's good or not is it's a completely separate issue. But no. in terms of, I mean, the best advice I was ever given when I was young was just do a page a day. And then at the end of the year, you have a book. 
No, I've never done that. But oh, okay, <laughs> like, I was gonna say so. Is, is, okay, so is that it? No, I've never done that. But like that to me kind of demystifies it, right? Right, where you're like, it is just an accumulation of things. Yeah. Um, so many books are terrible. Yeah. And so many writers are these snake oil salesmen who kind of don't have anything to say. I had to really come to a personal reckoning with myself. Really, be like, bitch, you're so fucking insecure. Right. Like, stop. Right actually stop like actually sit and think about it and like what this is about right and answer those questions for yourself right and then once i did that i was like a lot of the envy that i have is actually i envy people for their discipline right. and and the courage i think for me I, I i still have professional anxiety but not related to like my actual work right like i probably have too much of an ego about my actual work <laughs> but in terms of how it's positioned and stuff like that of course that anxiety is constant but when you realize that so many people are floundering, so many people with books um, didn't need to write them. You know, you're like, what compelled you to do this? And then that sort of is, you're like, okay, maybe I can do my own little version of this yeah. shittiness, you know? And then once you set the bar so low for yourself, you're just like, okay, I can reach, I can be a shitty writer. You know, that's that's not hard. I always want to go away for a little bit. Like last year to finish the book, I went to Bombay, right? I was right. like, it has to be done here it has to be finished here they can't finish it in toronto why did you want to go to bombay i mean my family is like nominally from there not really but right. kind of um if there was going to be an indian city where they were from it would probably be there or benares bombay was perfect because it's a big city it's you know everything you need is there but mm -hmm. everything i didn't want which was connections and friends and people in my life i just didn't want that for three months so you didn't hang out with anyone when you were in bombay no. at all no i didn't even see family did they know you were there? They found out, yeah. And how dramatic was it? I don't know. My my dad knows not to, like, yeah. And I just don't tell them anymore because I've been back, like, five times. I just never tell them. From 2016 onwards, my life had kind of, like, crumbled a little bit. And I had just, I got a grant and I sold the book and I was like, I really just need to get away um, and sort of take a step back from my parents, from my relationships, from everything, and just concentrate on this book. So I just rented an apartment and a studio space. Um, and I just did that for five days a week and then hung out on the weekends and just didn't talk, which was amazing. Like, I'm not, I don't like talking that much in general, but like to not have to do any sort of like to be able to leave your apartment and not, and <clears throat> know you're not going to run into anyone is kind of very freeing. People don't know who you are, you know? And so that, and you're just another brown guy. <laughs> yeah. And you're just another brown guy. And you have this entire burden of like personal and sort of historical like lifted off you right because you just you blend in and no one asks me like i can speak enough hindi that no one will ever think twice if if i'm just interacting on a surface level um, so what'd you do to hang out i don't know i went to concerts i like went out like to eat and stuff like that did but you do acid and listen to goa trance no i did not i've had my fill of goa and goa trance <laughs> goa is enough for me so did you accomplish what you set out to do in Bombay or did you have yeah. to come home and like... No, I, I went in December and the draft was due in March, the final draft, and it was finished. Was it ever daunting for you though? No. Really? For me, the anxiety has always been about how to be in a public space and not the actual writing. So for me, the navigation is always like, once this is done, what do I do with it? And how do I make that part of the life worth it? Because that I find really difficult because I don't know how to get, I don't know where that validation is coming from. Um, and I don't know that I validate myself, mm. you know, and I, and even though I have the book done, I don't know that I can feel anything sometimes from it. 
You know what I mean? No. It just feels like, okay, I've done this now. You just move on. As opposed to like. You don't have any feelings about like it. Like when, when, when people ask me, yeah. I'm like, okay, let's search. And like, I'm going to feel proud of it. But I don't know what. How it <laughs> exists. You have to tell yourself, let's search. Yeah. Let's go real let's deep. Let's go deep and see like, how do I feel about this? And I'm like, I'm like, okay, I wrote something that I didn't compromise in yeah. within myself. And that is what I feel proud about. But in terms of how it exists in the world at large, like I don't know what that negotiation is. I don't know what that means. And I think with writers, you're seeing, especially on stuff like Twitter and stuff, you see such a desperate bid for cultural attention that books no longer have. But you have all these like sensitive thinkers who have, you know, in some cases there are valuable thinkers, Mm -hmm. but there's not really a medium for them, you know? Yeah. And Sometimes I think like maybe essays is the best way rather than a book. I feel like more people care about this podcast than they have about the things that I've written. I shouldn't say that. No, but I know what you mean. This is more. More people care that I'm a writer now than my actual work. You know what I mean? Like it's more now that I can be like, oh, I've written a book. I'm a writer. And that is more interesting to engage with than any of my work. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the same sort of thing with the podcast, I think, right? Where it's like. Hey, this is a thing. It's a podcast, first of all. That's fucking hot. Like right now. Do you know what I mean? Like it's so in. And it's so much cooler than anything else. You have podcasts that you put on when you're just doing your dishes. Yeah, you just right. like kind of have in the back and then there's some that you'll save for like Isn't that more- so insulting? If someone was like, Yeah, I love listening to your podcast when I'm not. No, thinking. I don't think it's insulting because no. I think like people absorb things in different ways, right? Like some people find like the dishwashing or cooking process going inward. Right, and people so say they, that all the time. They yeah. take, they take, <laughs> you're like, I don't cook and I don't wash my dishes. I never so I enjoy washing my dishes. I've never been maybe like. Maybe you should put a podcast on. And you maybe. Might. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I should do that. Thirteen or fourteen, grade ten, we had to do an assignment for history class. We, growing up in North York. Growing up in North York, George's Henry. Um, I wrote. You had to write a story about the war, and I just copied Saving Private Ryan. And I was like, this <laughs> felt good. Like writing, plagiarizing. Yeah, felt good. Well, that actually haunted me for a long time. I was like, am I a plagiarist? Like, is that? And I didn't realize how that's kind of how art is made. I'm surprised your teacher didn't call you out. My grade eleven English teacher. Uh, held my paper back. Oh. He was like, "You didn't write this." The um, what was the word I used? I wish I could remember the word. Was it just too good? Yeah, it was a banger of a word. A humble and brag, he was yeah. like, "How did? How do you pronounce this?" I'm one thousand yeah. percent sure no one in my life yeah. had used that word. <laughs> but I, I've, I've always read a lot, and I've read like quite voraciously since mm. I was a young kid, and so I didn't know how to pronounce it, but I knew what it meant. Right. That's a shitty, I mean, did you, were you able to sort of process it as like, hey, this is actually kind of a great thing. He's just a dummy. Or did you just feel shame? I should probably unpack it a little bit more. I, I don't really feel like I was encouraged. I was encouraged in the sense that I was bright and curious. Right. 
but my parents are busy, you know, right. like they were doing their best and um, I was in the gifted program and like to them that was enough. Right. But like no one kind of, I didn't have anyone in my life who kind of cultivated an right, interest right, in a particular right. thing in me in a certain way. I did know I enjoyed writing and I always loved reading. And I wonder if like that moment was the reason why I didn't like go study English in university or something like that. Right. I'm not going to project on Mr. Simmons. I mean, he sounds like a dick. Well, right? yeah. I if mean, you have like one bright student, if your brain first goes to a plagiarism. Also, there is like something to admire in that audaciousness of you plagiarizing. If you had plagiarized like a great paper. <laughs> I also think that's its own value, which obviously Mr. Simmons didn't. <laughs> no, no. I had a very interesting experience in that like my high school was super multicultural um, like less white people than brown people and right. like everything else. And then when I went to university, I went to U of T St. George, I was like into like the newspapers and stuff like that. And those were all white spaces. And that was the first time I was not like a majority, you know, not necessarily South Asian, but like with other people. So I always knew that like that white people weren't it. And then in university, suddenly in these art spaces, I was confronted. People were like asking like, what kind of a brown are you? And I was like, what the fuck kind of question is that? Yeah. Like, I've never even thought of that before. Yeah. You know, like I was just like, oh, I'm Indian. And not in that way, in that questioning way. Um, yeah, so, because yeah. before within our social groups, it was like, you know, where's your family from or what's your background or whatever. But it's because everyone had a background. So exactly. It right. It was like no one, like white people very much view, view themselves as neutral. Yeah. Right. So when you get questioned from that perspective, it's, it's, it's interrogation as opposed to like, you know, you and your Persian buddy like yeah. asking each other. We tend to see um, and read a lot about the inverse experience, which is I was the only brown kid in my mostly white town. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's why I enjoy your book. Oh, cool. There's that fluidity yeah. there and that like removal of like trying to interpret this experience right that was big for the project where i didn't want to translate you know i didn't want to like come across like that um like if you're trying to write in the mode of realism then to explain otherness is a bit at you know opposite end i don't want there to be a distance between the reader and the, the protagonist the i which is present tense also mm -hmm. um so for me it was a formal question where i was like let's just remove that and see if this can work. And it does. You know, mm -hmm. I think you do have to give readers a lot more leeway. Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't compromise to ruin that fictional world you're creating, mm. right? That sensation, that mood, that tone, that has to take priority. Like those aesthetic questions have to take priority mm -hmm. over explaining the other. And also explaining the other in fiction to me feels like I'm cheating myself. Yeah. Whereas even in nonfiction, I feel that, but I feel a bit more imperative to be willing to explain things, but I don't want to necessarily. Like right now I'm working on a piece where um, the magazine kind of wants me to explain that I'm using Bombay over Mumbai. Mm. Um, and it's not like a, it's not an issue of like, it's not an issue of tension or anything like that. But for me, I'm just okay with leaving it as Bombay. And I think that if you don't get it, that's fine. Mm -hmm. If you're really curious, you can Google it. Your book is called There Has to Be a Knife. Yeah. What is the two-line synopsis that you would give to, like, that one high school acquaintance oh. who has, like, a lovely, fine family in North yeah, York and yeah. commutes to their job at Deloitte and uh, maybe you bump into them outside of Paris, Paris, because they're out with their coworkers <laughs> on Dundas West. And they, you know, subsidize all these bars for us. Sure, yeah. So we can go on the weekdays <laughs> when they're quiet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, two line synopsis. I'm still pretty bad at it, but I, I guess I say it's a novel about a guy whose ex girlfriend has died and he's just going through some trouble. That's a terrible synopsis. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like, yeah, that's a bad <laughs> synopsis. I don't. I, I get very anxious. He's going through. Some, he's going through some trouble. I yeah. particularly take issue with the phrase "some trouble." Yeah, he's going through some trouble. He's having a hard time. He's spiraling. Yeah, I mean, he's having a very bad time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's self-destructive. I'll just say it without any like. You know, I really wanted to write into a character that sort of embodied a lot of stereotypes. And hmm. I wanted to see what space I could find there. You know, but what stereotypes were you thinking of in particular? Because he embodies a range of stereotypes. Yeah. I mean, for me, the two in particular that, or I guess the one really that I, I was curious about this idea of danger, hmm. right? And there's danger not only from like generic sort of like post 9-11 danger of a young Muslim man, but also like in Western Europe, there's a lot of sexual danger towards Muslim men. And like, you know, you hear about these roaming gang, yeah. gangs of Muslim men raping Swedish women all the time and stuff like that. And so I wanted to write into that character. Not, I don't think most of that is real, right? No, no, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. It's not real. Just, to, just so we're yeah, just, sorry, just clear. So we're clear. not hearing it's about like, it because it's fact. Yeah, and really one of the big generative points for this book was after the Boston bombings where there was a lot of talk about the dark skinned males that, mm. that people thought were the bombers, but this is before they were caught and they were believed to be like these light skinned Dagestani boys. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, and that was the first time I was living in Melbourne and that was the first time where I was like, Oh, what does it mean to be a dark skinned male in that particular context? Um, and I thought that intersection of youth, but also like that idea of having a long-term relationship when you're that age um, was a really curious way to sort of look at it. Can you talk about the dialogue a bit? Yeah. Like, yo, chill, as yeah, a complete yeah, yeah. sentence. <laughs> it was a complete sentence. I was like, there's so much that yeah. you could take from that. Yeah. I mean, for me, one of the big <laughs> things I wanted to do between the prose and the dialogue was show a little bit of the texture of code switching mm -hmm. and the interiority and how, or at least for these, ma these men and the particular type of codes that they were embodying, how their interiority might be a little bit more complex, but how when they express themselves, it's coming out in this very codified way right. that's very protected. But, you know, between them, it might be saying a lot, but certainly on the outside, you're like, wait, these people don't have any emotions. I think that's why Yo Chill carried meaning for me. Right. Because I've been in many situations right. where, like, that's all someone can muster up. Right, to right, say, right. But their body energy is bristling with exactly. so much more. Exactly. So you're, the protagonist, Omar, is a bit of a shithead. Yeah. A self-destructive shithead yeah. who, I'm sorry, I know his girlfriend died, but. No, no, it's good. Most people will not refer to him as a shithead. Oh, really? But he is a sh You can still be a, all these things and be a shithead. You can still shit. be sad and be a, be a shithead. shithead. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And you can still have empathy for a shithead. Yes. And I think that's the thing. That's the thing that I wanted to pull out more was like, hey, this guy's a shithead and might be fulfilling certain things that we talk about. But where does our empathy go? So Pasha Mala blurbed the book and mm -hmm. called it an acute study in toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. Was that something that you set out to explore? Yeah. I mean, I, I did want to explore masculinity. Yeah. Right. And it often manifests as a, like a toxic, caustic sort of thing. Um, but certainly the big thing was I wanted to explore um, behavior in, in, in juxtaposed with the internal sense of self, right? With someone who is maybe looking for meaning, maybe looking for love, but is, has these such strong codes of behavior that he's learned um, that are preventing him from getting these things that he really wants. 
It reminded me of guys I grew up with a lot. Yeah. It reminds me of guys I grew up with, too. Everyone from North York or from North of Bloor is basically telling me that it's reminding them of people they grew up with, you know? <laughs> How do you write about toxic masculinity without kind of turning it into a performance of writing about toxic masculinity? Right. You know? That's been like that's been the hardest talking point because it's such a it's so obnoxious to hear a dude talk about toxic masculinity, right? Like yeah. you don't want to. When I was writing the book, I wasn't thinking about toxic masculinity. I was thinking about Omar. Why do you think you get that reaction from like North of Bloor versus South of Bloor? Because toxic masculinity or whatever you want to call it is present in both of these spaces. Because what is the divergence? People are a lot ready we're a lot readier to see toxic masculinity in brown people and in brown men right like we're viewed as very toxic subjects um and i think people are more comfortable brown people and white people are more comfortable talking about us owning our toxic masculinity as opposed to you know the nice white guy mm -hmm. who is is just equally as toxic obviously um but that's a much safer way to approach it mm -hmm. so i think that's a big part of it You know, I was sent to the library when I was very young by my mom because my brother who's two years older than me was getting in trouble. And mm. she was like, let's keep this one out of trouble. And she sent me to the library, no mandate of like what I should read. So I just read comic books. And that's how I fell in love with reading because I was allowed to do what I wanted at the library. As long as I was in this house of books, you know, I could just do whatever. And so that's, I think that was the best thing that happened because I was able to develop my own curiosities mm -hmm. naturally. Um and so that kind of in many ways saved my, you know, career, like my life path um, by being able to sort of invest that energy into that. Um, recently, my brother went to jail. And so that's mm -hmm. been like a big thing where it's like, how far apart are we in our in our composition? Mm -hmm. Right. And for me, this is one of the big major things between us is that, you know, I was sort of invested in books from a very, very, very young age. And that allowed me to push my mental energy somewhere. Mm -hmm. Having a way to express energy was really good, you know, and being able to see myself reflected in different things and learning how to read on my own, you know, learning how to like read widely on my own. Not everyone gets that opportunity to follow their nose with books. And I think that's what, for me, created a love for it. I don't really actually ask people this question, but I am curious, just because you've spoken a bit about your brother. Yeah. Did your parents, what did your parents think of you wanting to be a writer? My mom has a PhD in English literature. Ah. So my mom's a reader. Um, my dad's an accountant. So the opposite side, like my dad wanted me to become a lawyer because he was like, hey, you like reading. <laughs> Lawyers get paid a lot. <laughs> and now that I'm 32 and I look back on that, I'm like, that makes sense. Like that is what you would tell your child. Like even if I had a kid now, I wouldn't be like, hey, be a writer. It's easy. You'll get <laughs> fulfilled and you know, you'll have to struggle. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a little bit of pressure to do that but then i remember once when i was 23 or something me and my dad just had it out and i was like you gotta stop and i was like i can't come over anymore if you just keep if so I... he wanted me you to be a lawyer that bad yeah and he would like always like crack about it make jokes about it even when i was 23 adnan yeah adnan don't you want to don't you want adnan on the wall <laughs> on your door <laughs> and 
we just talked about it and I was like, you can't do it anymore. And he was like, okay. What a joker. I'm yeah, yeah my, dad, my dad is a joker. He's a huge joker. Sometimes um, he'll even be like, yeah, this is a non. Oh, sorry. Ad man. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, he loves it. Yeah. But no, I think there was never a lot of pressure because also I have an older brother who, like I said, has been sort of swerving in and out of trouble. Mm-hmm. So because I wasn't doing that, it made my choices a lot more palatable. You know what I mean? And so when you had that argument or conversation with your father, um, did you know you wanted to be a writer at that point? Or yeah. were you just like, I don't want to be a lawyer? No, no. I, I, like, yeah, I've known since I was 14. Oh, wow. Like, that's what I've been trying to do. Yeah. I've written two, like, I guess they would call them, like, apprentice works, you know, like, where just, they just exist in my closet. Um, I mean, although this novel did take a long time. I wrote the first draft in 2012. Holy fuck. I put it away for three years. How do you not feel it like in your drawer mocking you? Because it's bad. And so you, it mocks you, but it's bad. So you're like, I'm gonna, you're ugly and I'm going to leave you alone. So the other two books that I've written that, you know, I call my, my practice books, as I was editing them, editing them, I was bored of them. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, I'm a better reader than I am a writer. I'll always be a better reader than I'm a writer. But this book never bored me as I was drafting it. So I could keep working on it, keep finding depth in it, keep editing it, keep wanting to compose it. And how did you make money during all of this? Um, when I was a master's, I was bartending. And in between that was sandwiched with like full year terms, um, doing data entry, once at a bank and once at Rogers and just saving that money and then taking time off to right. work. I feel like you've had a lot of um, uh, like a pretty conflict free career in the sense that you don't seem to have had many self-doubts. Yeah, no, I've been very lucky. Um, I mean, I, it might be just because my gaze is way too inward. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But, like, I'm pretty good. Or well, I'm not pretty good. But, like, I realize that, like, things like Twitter are, are things I have to stay away from because they will ignite a sort of anxiety in me. When you do receive that validation, it I, I've learned that it's shallow. And as much as you want it, it doesn't ever be fulfilled as deeply as you want it to be fulfilled from that source. What source are you talking about? Just other people you don't fucking know. And like, again, keeping up that whole, it's like a Jenga thing of like a bunch of fucking people who are just propping themselves up. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, Because they know that if they stop playing that role, then everything falls apart. Right. Um, My editors were always like, you should get Twitter. Yeah. You you should always do this. And I never stopped to ask why. Um, And to me, it was a way of being seen. As you work more, I guess I realized that more of the fulfillment came from the work and the process. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that sound like the perfect writing experience, though? Yeah. I think to formalize your writing identity for the sake of your brand, which is, you know, the grossest 2010 word (laughs) in existence. (laughs) It's just like to formalize a process that's supposed to be so receptive to the world is Mm kind of tough, right? And it kills it. You're Um, still on Twitter, though. I am, yeah. I, I deactivated for a long time, and then when the book came out, I felt like I had to be, you know. I but then I rewrote, I sort of rewrote the rules for my Twitter, which is I don't read Twitter really anymore, mm-hmm. and I just post whatever I need to for my book. Mm-hmm. So that way, I can say I'm on it. No one can sort of bug me about not being on it. Mm-hmm. But I don't read. I don't like pay attention to my notifications and stuff like that, or I try not to. I think your access to like that internal void. You know, it's kind of important to be able to confront that abyss that is in you. You're the third person now who has used the word void to yeah, describe it. That emptiness has a weird depth. Mm-hmm. You know, it has a weird texture and it has a resonance where if you shout into it, you will hear something. Um, and I think that's actually kind of important. 
and we don't do that anymore because it's it is very fucking scary right like to just sit there and be like okay good writing should make you feel vulnerable right and it should tap into that part and if you're one of these many snake oil salesmen you're just like sales people sales people gender neutral please sniff my fart like it's just amazing for me (laughs) you know that's what camlet is it's just fart sniffing (laughs) that can be the the that's the (laughs) you can follow the show on instagram at burnout pod theme song for burnout is by lal the song is called dark beings and original music provided by jamal padmore and as a reminder if you're on itunes or any other podcasting platform that allows you to rate and review shows please do so for burnout subscribe to my newsletter it's also called burnout and you can find it at anupa.substack.com that's a-n-u-p-a dot substack.com i really appreciate your attention thanks for listening to burnout